I invite you this morning uh, to turn with me uh, once again uh, to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you don't have uh, a copy of God's Word, um, you can follow along in the insert found in your bulletin or uh, there uh, are Bibles available on the back cart. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you certainly can uh, take that and use it and take it home as our gift to you. For months now, we have been studying uh, the life of Jesus uh, from the perspective of Peter, uh, but from the pen or the quill, I suppose, from, uh, of Mark, who has given us this account of the life of Jesus. And many of you have been here all along the way, but some of you have not. Um, but this morning, as we pick up the story where we left off last week, we are chronologically in the middle of Passion Week. Uh, it's Wednesday. Uh, Jesus has come into town uh, with great fanfare, with palms and branches, and uh, on, uh, seated on a donkey uh, to the praise of Hosanna. And uh, at the end of the week, the mobs uh, in Jerusalem will put him on a cross. Uh, but here we are in the middle of the week, and uh, it's been quite a week. For Jesus, it's been a week filled with questions, filled with confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And these men have come to Jesus time and time again, and they come with questions, not curious questions that they really want to hear the answers to, but questions that are meant to entrap Jesus, questions that are meant to reverse the popularity of this Jewish rabbi who has an incredible following and who threatens their power over Jewish life and the Jewish people. And so these men, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, we've heard all kinds of different names to describe the various facets of religious leaders who have come to him. They are fulfilling the words of Psalm 2-2. We've looked at Psalm 2-2 a long time ago. The rulers counsel, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's exactly what's happening. There's a huddle there's a confrontation, a question, there's a huddle, there's another confrontation, there's a question, the apostles will bring this psalm up, Psalm 2 in Acts 4, after Jesus has been put to death as verification of Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy. And so today, as we pick up this story, yet another question comes to Jesus from yet another man, uh, a scribe, a member of the Pharisees, and uh, he's a scribe that's been overhearing some of what's been going on and decides to enter the fray himself. And Mark doesn't tell us this explicitly, but Matthew's account of this same event tells us explicitly that this is yet again an opportunity uh, to trap Jesus. And yet... There seems to be with this man and with his question in particular, as you're about to see, as you're about to hear, there seems to be a sincerity to this man and to his question that we don't find in the previous questions of this week. We'll see in verse 28 that he thought Jesus had answered well. He commends Jesus, and Jesus has something to say for him, to him as well. So let's listen 
If, if you are able, uh, I'd invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. Um, if not, just remain in your seat and listen closely uh, to the reading of God's word. We are in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28, reading down through verse 37. Listen as I read. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin with a question. Have you ever, have you ever turned on the radio, any station, doesn't matter, a music station, have you ever turned on the radio and heard a song about love? Of course you have. I heard the Snickers. You don't have to be a music lover like I am to rattle off multiple songs that you've heard recently with the title, with the word love in the title. I looked this week at Billboard's Top 100, which I'm sure you guys are all well up to speed on. Love on the Brain. Fake love, let me love you, love me now are just four of the titles on the top 100 of the Billboard charts just this week. We love to sing about love. We love to love because we are by nature lovers. We are hardwired to love. Of course, we're that way because God made us that way. It is because God exists in love and has for all eternity that we as his creatures, as those made in his image, are constantly looking for love. We want to be loved. 
and we want to love. In fact, it's belief in the God of the Bible as opposed to all other gods that are proclaimed on this planet, it is, God, it is the God of the Bible, the one true God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that alone explains this reality. C.S. Lewis, the great writer and apologist, made this observation in his classic work, which I know many of you have read, Mere Christianity. He says this, all sorts of people, and this is still true of us today as a society, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem to not notice that the words God is love have no meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Because love is something that one person has for another person. And so as we have talked about before, as I have proclaimed from this pulpit, as we have meditated on more than once, but it's worth repeating, it is not out of need that God creates us as lovers. It is out of the overflow of the Trinitarian love that God has created us to be lovers, to love Him and to love one another. And when you boil everything down about our religion, this is what matters most. See, that's where the scriptures take us this morning. It's where Jesus himself takes the scribe as the scribe comes to him with yet another question, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, the question by the scribe isn't necessarily a, a controversial one. It's not an odd question, neither for those times nor for our own hearts. I mean, this kind of question was the stuff of rabbinic discussion. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had concluded, they had come up with the fact that there were 613, give or take a few, 613 total laws from God that needed to be considered. Many of those were positive laws. Many of them were prohibitions. They were negative laws. Well, with 613 laws to abide by, you can imagine the anxiety. How can we possibly follow all those laws? How can we boil it down for us, Jesus? Distill it a little bit. I mean, there were laws, capital L, and then there were laws. Burglary is not the same as jaywalking. And Jesus himself in Matthew 23, 23, to the very group, the Pharisees, to which this man belonged, he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so the question is not odd. It's not necessarily controversial. So what makes it so? Why is it a test for Jesus? Well, after their latest little powwow, after their latest little hubba, uh, huddle, after the Sadducees' uh, attempt at resurrection and spoiling Jesus' um, party then didn't work, 
The Pharisees came with this question because they had concluded long ago that the message that Jesus proclaims, this message of the kingdom, this message of the gospel, was an attack on Moses, their most revered saint. It was an attack on the law of God. And so, These men, they keep asking Jesus about the law. They keep asking Jesus about the things of Moses in an effort to get him to say something that will be flat out contradictory to the law. In opposition to Moses, the one everyone reveres. If they can get Jesus to contradict the law, if they can get Jesus to stand opposed to Moses, then they can turn and gain the support of the Jewish crowds and eventually get the Romans involved as this man is proved to be a great insurrectionist, a rebellious leader against the empire. But as we've seen time and time again, Jesus will not contradict the law. Jesus comes to fulfill the law. The law is Jesus' law. And so Jesus' answer to this man encapsulates all that it means to be a follower of God. All that it means to be a Christian. It defines our spiritual lives. Our entire lives are to be about this. We are to be lovers of God and in turn, lovers of one another. And it's not just a reality for us, the church. That's important to see. This is what humankind was made for. God demands all of humanity to love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. This is not just an option among many options. So what does this love look like? Not the shallow love that we hear sung about on the radio every time we turn it on, but this truest of love that we were created for. Well, Jesus answers the man with not one command, but two. Two inextricably tied to one another. Verse 29, let me read it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In just three sentences, Jesus encapsulates everything else. And he tells us what true love looks like. It's a daunting passage to think about. We're just going to scratch the surface this morning because you could say that this command, these two commands, this greatest commandment of all is, is the entirety of this book and the outworking of this book. And so we scratch the surface this morning by meditating on just three truths. Three truths, and the first one is this. What does this true love look like? First of all, love looks like worship. True love looks like worship. 
Let's begin with the command to love God. Now, when I say that love looks like worship, I'm not thinking of merely what we are doing here this morning as important, as valuable, as necessary as it is for us to gather the first day of every week, the first morning of every week in the house of God and have this dialogue with the Lord where we confess and humble ourselves, where we sing his praises, where we hear from him his promises and his word. This is important. But when I say worship, I'm speaking about the entirety of your lives. Living a life that in every area proclaims that the Lord is your Lord, that He is worthy of your everything, that He is the focus of your affections and the center of your existence. Notice that Jesus begins His answer not with the command but with an intentional declaration of who God is. Right? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.4, what is commonly known as the Shema from the Hebrew word hear. Every morning and evening, pious Jews would recite this statement to remind them of the God that they were called to serve and the God that they were called to love. And in contrast to all the nations around them, nations that each had their own deity, Israel's God was one God. He was the only God. Not only that, but He was their God. He had chosen them the least among people. And He is the God who had revealed Himself to their father Abraham, after that to their father Moses, the one who rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians, the one who went with them in a cloud by day and fire by night, the God who gave them a land promise flowing with milk and honey inhabited by enemies greater than they. In other words, hear, O Israel, this is a God your God, worthy of worship. This is a God rooted in history. This is a God revealed personally. Therefore, this is a God who deserves your all-consuming love and devotion. Now, I'm not sure that in Jesus's words, which are quotes from the Old Testament, that we are to overly parse these various aspects of what love looks like in terms of loving God with our heart and soul and mind and strength. But I think we can briefly do so just to enlarge the command and to enlarge the call to worship. Loving God with our heart is loving God with the very core of our being. That's what a Hebrew meant when he talked about the heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the spring of life. Loving God with your soul is loving God with your emotions. Jesus will say in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Therefore, this love towards God is not merely a duty-driven love or a coldly calculated love, but one that touches our souls. Which is why David addresses the Lord very personally. I love you. I love you, Lord. 
That's why words like intimacy with the Lord and longing for the Lord are are not out of place when we talk about what it means to love our God. Loving God with our mind is loving Him with our intellect. Not only that, our intentions. You set your mind on things, right? You make up your mind to do certain things, and so it is with expressing your love to God. And then finally, loving God with your strength is loving Him with all the energy and all the effort that the Lord gives you. Now, as I was thinking about this command, a command that I know that we in the church have heard over and over again, you know, I think we as evangelicals, the most broad brush I can paint on the church, we as evangelicals, I think, are good at strength, at loving God with our strength. We, we're good at doing for God. And I think we, to put a little finer brush on it, we as Reformed Presbyterians, we are good at loving God with our mind, right? We're, we're intellectuals. We think rightly about God. I realize these are generalizations. Everyone's different. But the Lord Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Just meditate on what that means for us. Jesus, God is not merely a concept. He is not merely a set of propositions. He is not merely a task master or someone who has given us an ethical code. He is the great lover of you. And you are his beloved he sings over you. While he doesn't need your love to fill some kind of void that he has, he has no void, he is God. He wants your love. He desires that you make him the affection of your heart. See, all this adds up to a love that can't be compartmentalized, but one that encompasses our entire being, our entire existence, one that is at the core of every other command in Scripture. And to illustrate this, one commentator wrote about Galatians 5, that familiar passage of the fruit of the Spirit. He wrote this, in relation to what Jesus calls us to, joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Patience is love enduring. Kindness is love's self-forgetfulness. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's true touch. Self-control is love holding the reins. And so, yeah, this command sums up all other commands and becomes the backbone of everything that we're about. And it's the command, frankly, that brings us or ought to bring us by the Holy Spirit face to face with our idols, 
with all the things in our lives that compete for our minds, that compete for our energy, that compete for our emotions, whether it be reputation, whether it be success, whether it be power, whether it be control, whether it be pleasure, whether it be comfort, whether it be security, whether it be another person in your life, the Lord says, love me, you shall have no other gods before me. All good things, but only one thing, only one love is to be ultimate. So love looks like worship. That's the first thing. Secondly, love looks like sacrifice. Love looks like sacrifice. I found a book on Amazon this week. Um, The title of it is, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. Looked like an interesting read. It's kind of ironic that it was so short, but love yourself like your life depends on it. It was published a few years back as glowing ratings on Amazon.com, and the writer argues that the most transformative experience in one's life is the simple act of loving oneself. But Jesus doesn't seem to think that we need help in this area. In his command, and his response of what sums up the law of God, he doesn't focus on you, he doesn't focus on me, he doesn't focus on us, he focuses on God, he focuses on others. You dressed you this morning, you fed you this morning, you made yourself look pretty darn good this morning, and you do those things pretty well. And Jesus says, now love others in the same way that you love yourself with that same intentionality, with that same care. And bringing in the rest of the New Testament, bringing in the rest of the teaching of Jesus, don't just love people that you love to love or you like to love. Love those who aren't like you. Love those who are difficult. Love even your enemies. Again, Jesus' answer is not necessarily controversial. It's a quote from Scripture from Leviticus 19.18. Paul will pick it up in Romans 13.8 where he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. But what Jesus' words are is they're flat out hard to do. They're flat out impossible to do. Paul Miller, Christian author, has a great little book called Loving Like Jesus. I commend it to you. It's a wonderful read. And he says in that book, he says, loving means losing control of our schedule, our money, and our time. When we love, we cease to be the master and we become the servant. If you're like me, friends, you have flashes of true compassion at times, but mostly it's a slog. Through my own self-centeredness, through my own struggle to love people as I am called to love them, even those who are closest to me, even those I like the most, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
how I want to be able to see people through the eyes of Jesus, through the eyes of God. And that's why when we gather this morning, we hear this command in light of all that we've sung and all that we've heard. This command doesn't doesn't weigh us down. It doesn't burden us down. I don't want it to burden us down because it is the gospel alone that gives us hope to love. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that's why we leave this place with this final truth. Love looks like Jesus. Yes, love looks like worship with our entire being holding nothing back. Love looks like sacrifice, dying to self. But love ultimately looks like Jesus. Because we don't overflow with affection for our neighbor. We don't overflow with affection for God. And so ultimately, this summation of the law is something that we cannot do. And that's why it's appropriate that the fifth and final question that is posed in this chapter at the end of our text this morning is from Jesus himself. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, another psalm that we've looked at where he says, where, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is essentially, after this whole interchange about the law, about loving God, about loving your neighbor, Jesus is essentially drawing attention to the nature of the Messiah, the one that everyone has been waiting for in the Jewish world. Jesus says, is this Messiah, the one that you've been waiting for, is he the son of David or is he the Lord of David? Because it's kind of confusing when you read Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, the answer, of course, is he's both. And this is what the scribes have missed that is so important, that Jesus is so much bigger than the political Messiah that they were hoping for, that they were looking for, that they were longing for. He is better than they could have imagined. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is drawing attention to his own identity and enlarging it. He is the one from David who existed before David. You see it there in verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord. In other words, what David says there in Psalm 110 is, Yahweh said to Adonai, to my Adonai, two different words for Lord. The covenant name of the Lord, the personal name of the Lord says to my Lord. See, Jesus is not the one who merely came to give commands. Jesus is the one who came to give of himself in order that those commands might not be burdensome. And that's why the gospel is such good news. That's why our hearts need to hear it 
every week and every day. When we think of love, we must think of Jesus. He is our guide. He is our goal. Like the Jews who commented on Jesus in John chapter 11 exclaimed, see how he loved? That needs to be our cry. We need to see how Jesus loves. How does Jesus love? We've been looking at his life for months. What are some of the ways that Jesus has loved so well? Jesus has asked questions before he assumed answers. Jesus has been patient and has taken the time for the marginalized and for the least of these. He was honest without being judgmental. He loved those who were low because he himself made himself low. And we could go on and on about the ways Jesus that has loved. And that's why I gave a shameless plug for Paul Miller's book, Loving Like Jesus, or Love Walked Among Us. See how he loved. But Jesus is not only the guide for our love, he's the goal. One of the most interesting statements in this passage is what Jesus says to the scribe. You are not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. What did he lack? He just liked Jesus. He needed Jesus. He was on the right track. He just needed to look away from himself and unite himself to the one who makes this kind of love possible. We need Jesus. We need his union. We need his sacrifice. We love only because he first loved us. So brothers and sisters, yes, love looks like worship. Love looks like sacrifice. Jesus has shown it. Jesus has done it in order that we might walk in it and in order that we might become what we behold. And so behold Jesus that you might be like him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the call of the gospel for the reminder that it is finished, that your love for us has earned our standing with you, and now we in turn can walk in that love. Oh, Father, take our tepid hearts and ignite them with your love that we might love you with all that is in us, that we might love our neighbors as ourselves. Holy Spirit, we depend upon you and ask for your grace to go with us and before us and behind us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.